Hello and welcome to Humans in Extremes. My name is Heather Massey and in this podcast we'll be chatting to people who've worked and lived in extreme or challenging environments. On today's podcast we have Dr Jodie Moss. Now Jodie has just completed a PhD in environmental physiology and we'll talk a bit about that later on. She's also an endurance runner, is a multiple Ironman triathlete and was the eighth fastest female in the Marathon de Sable last year in 2019. Welcome to the podcast Jodie. Thank you very much, that's a very overwhelming introduction, it's very kind of you. Now, the first thing I wanted to focus on, as a long-distance swimmer myself, running is my nemesis. But you seem to really enjoy it. So I'd really like to find out a little bit more about your Marathon de Saab experiences. So firstly, what is the Marathon de Saab? What does it involve? And why did you enter? Sure. The Marathon de Saab is a 250-kilometre foot race across the Sahara Desert. And it's a self-supported race. Basically, you are carrying everything that you need for the whole seven days of the race. All of your food, all of your kit. And for me, I entered it because I was finishing my PhD and I wanted to end my year really tying it all together with, you know, having done the research within environmental physiology and then actually putting it into practice and I thought it would be a really great finale. The difference is a PhD, there's no real finish line <laughs> compared to the marathon to solve. So the finish line of the PhD kept on going a bit longer and longer, further and further away, I should say, really. But I finished it all within the same year. So that was a really nice ending to everything. It's clearly a marathon undertaken in the desert. Now, us as Brits, we we complain about the weather all of the time. Can you just tell me a little bit about the conditions that you experienced whilst you were undertaking that marathon? Sure. So what it is, is it is a marathon. It's typically about 32 to 37 kilometres in the first three days. And then you have a long stage averaging between 60 and 90 kilometres. It changes every year. And then you have a bit of a rest day and then a marathon. There's lots of different stages within this race. The conditions really varied throughout. During the day, the first two days were hot. They weren't extremely hot, but they were hot. They were about probably 35 degrees, depending on the time of day that we were facing. And then by day three, we did actually experience a little bit hotter conditions than the first two days. When you are doing this race, because it varies in terrain, going up through jebels or going on very open kind of mass areas called salt plains or salt lakes, you are then exposed to those greater environmental stresses. When going through those hotter areas, you can really feel the heat during those conditions. And there's little uh, airflow as well in some areas. So getting that cooling effect is really minimal and especially when you are running you're typically not running at higher speeds where you'll be experiencing greater airflow when you're on the bike for example you get a greater amount of that airflow it is quite difficult at times and it's being able to 
kind of be really in touch with all of those elements throughout because you just don't want to be getting yourself into a sticky situation at any time. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Just one thing you said there, can I ask you what a dreble is? A dreble is like a small like hill, like a bit of a mountain. There was one day on the marathon uh, stage we had about, I think it was a 25% incline. And that, that was extremely hard. And especially because you're, you're on a, you know, a surface area that, that moves, you know, you're on sand, it's not set in place. And therefore you have to be really aware of foot placing and how you're going to approach that aspect of it as well. It's not just all about running and staying as cool as you can. It's how you're going to place your feet and not tax yourself as much as possible, really. So for me, I'm always on that concert, like conservative end, just because you don't know what is going to come up next. To me, this sounds like my worst nightmare. You're in a hot desert environment. You're trying to run on sand, although it's not a sprint. You're, you're running on sand. You're yeah. carrying absolutely everything because you're on a self-supported uh, route. That sounds like a, a complete nightmare to me. Uh, what about water and feed stations? Are they made available or do you have to carry all of your own water as well? No, so with water, you are prescribed a set amount at different time points. Depending on the length of the stage, you would be likely given, you know, on the first three days, I think it was only about two feed stations. I don't mean feed stations, fluid stations, I should say, really, because you're not given any food. You have to have that sorted yourself before you get there. And there's a requirement that you need to have a minimum of 2,000 calories for seven days. So 14,000 calories in total. They have these checks at, before you start the race and potentially, depending on how much detail they want to go into, they could explore that and they could see, you know, have you got sufficient amount of food? Because obviously safety before anything is key, whether in, we're in the lab or we're doing these races. So um, when it comes to food, you, you're not given anything. When it comes to fluid, through these fluid stations, you're given between 1.5 and 3 litres, depending on the length of the stage. But all in all, you are given enough water. There was only one occasion that I ran out of water during a running section. And that was very difficult to manage. Being thirsty is extremely hard to cope with, especially when you're in the heat. <laughs> that was really hard. I mean, you're sweating away there. You've got a very limited water supply. So I can imagine that comes with a, a great deal of anxiety about running out of water prematurely. And, and you're right, how it must be quite difficult to manage. You started to mention about preparing your food and, and having 2,000 calories a day doesn't seem a lot considering the amount of energy that you're going to be expending. Is did you take more or were people really restricted to that? Well, it's all about a weight kind of game when it comes to marathon sarban. I don't mean weight in terms of body weight. Yes, that plays a part in it, but weight in terms of how much additional load are you going to carry on your back? When we think about that in terms of just as a scientist, you know, carrying any additional load will do a number of things it will 
create a greater energy expenditure because you're having to carry a greater mass. It can also create a, a higher heat production. And also with the rucksack being on your back, if your back and your shoulders are one of the primary avenues of where sweat is released, and if you're potentially blunting that, what that was feeding into my thought process, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to minimize that effect. When it comes to calories, you want to have a sufficient amount without, but you don't have too much because then it will play into your carrying too much weight on your in your backpack. And not only is that going to be quite difficult to carry, but it potentially could change the way you biomechanically place footing on the sand or something, which could increase your risk of injury. And there's all those kind of elements to consider as well. But on average, I would have between 2,500 and my max day was 3,100. I did get more than what they asked for, but I focused quite a lot on fat as well because that's got a higher density of calories per gram compared to a carbohydrate. Well, so it sounds like there's a huge amount of planning that went into what you were going to take in terms of the kit. How much stuff did you take with you? How, how heavy was your bag? There's a requirement that you have to have your bag between 6.5 and 14.5 kg. You're not allowed anything lighter and you're not allowed anything heavier. And they weigh that. For me, the priority was, well, I want to be as light as possible. And I did an immense amount of research into every item of kit and finding the lightest item of kit. I also went to the extremes of cutting my toothbrush and a toothbrush is a luxury good <laughs> but I think if you're going to feel a bit better and fresh I think that's really important to consider. I had my weighing scales with me a lot of the time and on the lead up to the race and I would be constantly weighing things and I, I did have an iPod and I, I bought a really mini charger and I even took like the plastic off that to try and save one or two grams because it was all about that in my head. You know, I wanted to be, if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and just go for it, basically. In terms of other equipment, were there any things that you changed about your footwear or the clothing that you wore? In terms of footwear, you take one pair of shoes. And I went through a number of pairs of trainers throughout the training period, really just to try and experience what shoes will be comfortable, what is going to be durable. I chose a pair of hockers. I don't tend to wear them. I'm, I'm a Nike girl. But Nike didn't have a shoe at the time really that was I thought would be beneficial for the race. They do now, which I would run in for sure. They have a trail Pegasus shoe. With the shoe, you need to put Velcro on it that you get professionally someone sews it on and you're then you put your gaiters on it. And gaiters are sort of like a cover that goes over the shoe and it prevents sand going into your shoe. Because if you get sand in your shoe, that with the heat and the moisture will create blisters and be extremely uncomfortable. So you are trying to minimize that effect. With kit, I only took one item of shorts to run in and t-shirt to run in sports bra 
I did take two pairs of socks and a spare pair of shorts that I just wore at in camp. But that was it for clothes. It's not the cleanest sport, <laughs> but <laughs> it's sufficient. When it comes to luxury items, a toothbrush, I did have an iPod and I wouldn't do that again. I bought one primarily because I wanted to take some photos as well and potentially document how I was feeling at times and also listen to music. I, I love listening to music when I run. It really liberates me. And I got to the start line and I went to put my music on and all my music had been wiped. I was just like, okay, what am I going to do? I, I had a lot of things in place to help me. I think it's really important to have plan A, plan B and plan C and maybe a few more after that too, especially when it comes to endurance racing. Having your music wiped sounds like quite a curveball. So I know from my experiences of long distance swimming that it's not just a physical battle. There's definitely a mental battle to be had there as well. Absolutely. What was your mental battle like and how did you overcome some of the hurdles that that battle presented? When I race is actually when I get the, my biggest lessons in life. I don't know what it is about it, but I, maybe it's because I'm very present and very in the moment that I'm able to get a lot more clarity potentially. One thing I learned from when I was doing Ironman racing was this thing of ebb and flow, of we go through highs and we go through lows. And when you're racing, these highs and lows happen very quickly. You can bounce between high and low within moment to moment. And what I learned from those racing days was because these moments change so often, you're never in it for too long. So when you're having a bad moment, it's not about holding on to it and, and really going into it and being like, well, this is really bad, I'll just give up. And because you just accept it because you know it will change back into a good moment. You don't know when, but it will happen. So when I was doing the marathon sub, I had that experience of knowing that when I was gonna go through bad times, and I did go through bad times, that this wasn't going to last. This feeling of, this is really tough. It was just then in that moment. That was my first thing, was to basically not go into too much detail on a negative moment. I think that was really important because there was, on day two, we had a a really tough stage where we had warm-up of 13 kilometers or maybe it was just less than that and then we had about 13 kilometers of sand dunes and the sand dunes were extremely tough very very hot you're very exposed you're in very soft sand so the placing of the feet was you know you weren't getting any push off as you would from a road it was just absorbing everything i had a really sore back unfortunately I, I had to have an operation a few months after the race I always knew about this but I had a bone it's called an os trigonum and it's a bone that sits behind your ankle and it never fused properly or it potentially may have broken off at one point during my racing years and this bone floats around at the back of your ankle and can get caught when you place your foot down it's like a bit of a, a nutcracker it cracks it I, I had this pain in my training leading up to it, I potentially was holding a lot of the 
strain in my shoulders to try and protect myself. And I think potentially that could have hurt my back a bit. And plus wearing a rucksack probably doesn't help anything. I always think I'm going to be able to finish something, but in that moment, I just didn't know if I was going to be able to finish it. It was really tough, but you just keep going one foot in front of the other. And I knew if I just kept doing that, I'll get back to camp and then I'll just recover and just keep going basically. Wow. (laughs) Clearly, you don't just sit on a couch and then one day you go, I'm going to run the Marathon de Saab. Can you sort of describe the build-up, preparing for the Marathon de Saab and, and also what prompted you to, to run the marathon? I, I'm constantly trying to learn how, how we can become the best and how my research can help people become the best and meet their goals. And my th- Last PhD research study was a heat acclimation intervention where I recruited well over 16 individuals and the final number was 16 because, you know, it's a very taxing experience to do a heat acclimation intervention. But I chose 16 individuals and all of these participants were about to do the Marathon Saab in 2018. For about three and a half weeks, I was just exposed to these incredible people that were about to undertake this phenomenal experience. And these sort of people were very committed, driven, happy, just full of life individuals. That was really what inspired me because they're the kind of people that I want to be around, I want to to be like, to going forward, all of the things that I look for, really. So when I had seen the Marathon Saab on Runner's World and they look at the top 10 races, I used to look at that race and be, well, this is quite scary. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. But then after meeting all these individuals, I was like, definitely, this is what I'm going to do. And I was just really inspired and I thought, I'm going to do it. And I had 11 months or 10 months to prepare for it. I wasn't by any means a runner. I know I've done Ironman, but I never focused on running during Ironman training because I used to get injured all the time. It was just about building up slowly and ticking off the things that I knew I needed to tick off to be able to complete something like this. For three whole weeks, you had these potential Marathon de Saab runners in your lab, heat acclimatising. And was this the stage where you thought, I'm going to start pumping them for information? Or or was it really towards the end of that three-week period you thought, oh, well, actually, yeah, I could give this a bash? It was more just the end of it, really. And also, I am someone that really strongly believes that if I want to work within this industry and be able to really help someone to my best ability, I feel that I need to actually experience it also. And the lessons that I learned through racing and that experience are so valuable. And while being in the classroom and being in the lab is great, the questions that I ask myself and experience are just extremely different when I'm actually doing it. And I'm not saying everyone to be the best 
practitioner or coach or scientist needs to go and experience it always. But that's just how I like to go about it. There's something you can't get from a textbook that you can from real lived experiences. Yeah. You've clearly learnt a lot on your journey towards uh, completing the Marathon de Saab. What advice would you give people that would like to take part in uh, ultra-distance marathons? It doesn't have to be the Marathon de Saab, but uh, long-distance races. I'd always ask people to write down what is this race that they want to achieve? What are the elements to it? Is it self-supported? Is it multi-stage where you're having to repeatedly get up every day for a certain amount of days to run or whatever cycle? Is it self-supported? What just all of these different elements, write them all down and then kind of strip it back into the lead up period and be like, well, how can I prepare for that? So if it is multi-stage, well, then I need to implement being able to run at certain durations consecutively. If it is carrying a certain amount of weight, well, I need to look at how can I, over this durational time building up to the race, can I slowly add 10% weight to my bag, then 20%. Slowly, slowly, how can I then get to that start line knowing that I have fundamentally done what I need to do within training to be in the best position possible to A, be at the start line, and then B, to get to the finish line. That's brilliant advice. Now, you did mention that you did a little bit of triathlon. When you say a yeah. little bit, an Ironman triathlon is nothing a little bit of triathlon. That's quite a lot of triathlon. It's clear that you've got an endurance base, an endurance background. Can I just ask a little bit about Ironman triathlon, what it's like to run those, how that initially supported your endurance base for these longer distance runs? I blame YouTube because I saw a video about an Ironman and it must have been Kona because the music was just so pumped and uh, the motivation, I just thought, well, I've got to do this. I did one sprint. I literally turned up with a bike that was about hundred pounds, like a wetsuit that I bought, a decathlon that was a kid's wetsuit, definitely, because it, it, was, it was just one that you'd go to the beach in. I thought, I'm never doing this again. I thought it was the worst experience. It was really difficult and it was only a sprint. But then I saw the YouTube video of Kona and I thought, well, I'm going to do an Ironman. I, I was going traveling. I thought, no, nah, four months would be enough time to train for an Ironman. <laughs> and I came back from China looking like a dumpling. <laughs> I'd eaten a lot. I thought, oh, well, I've got to start training. And I had chose Ironman Wales. And Ironman Wales isn't the easiest course to do, but geography isn't my strength. And I do have this amazing ability of kind of signing up to things and just getting on with it. And that really helps in some respects because I don't go into too much detail. I just get on with it, basically. And then I get to the start line and then experience, oh, well, this is quite difficult, (laughs) but... It was an amazing, that that whole experience of doing Ironman was really the start of believing anything really is possible. And you've got to put, if you put your mind to something, you can get through it. Once I did my first Ironman and I came second in my age group, I thought, well, I'm going to come back and win. 
And because I, I wanted to go to the World Championships, I went on this mission to basically go and achieve that. And I had some of my, my biggest failures during Ironman, which taught me my most valuable lessons. But I also had a great amount of success and did go to the World Championships and was able to experience that, which was phenomenal. I disagree with the word failure because clearly if you're doing an Ironman, it's not really a failure. But what lessons did you learn from your attempt? <laughs> you're right. I think failure is a bit of a... It's a word I don't really like to use. Um, I don't like anyone else to use it, but I freely can use it on myself. But... Failure in terms of I wanted to go back and win. What I did was I put a thousand percent into the next 12 months to go back and win. And what happened was I was I wasn't as experienced. I was 22 years old. I wasn't maybe aware of everything and didn't have the ability to understand to the extent that I understand now things all or nothing it's it does get you some success but actually one plus one doesn't always equal two when it comes to these things and I got to the start line I was probably pretty exhausted and overcooked I got hit really badly in the swim it was extremely tough swim conditions in the sea where 70 odd people got pulled out because it was so rough I was then being sick on the bike, but I was frustrated and powered on and did an immense amount of time to the point that I was being videoed as I was coming into transition because I was high up and even just with all the females and got onto the run and couldn't feel my body. And it was so painful to even put a foot down that I couldn't face going through that and I just pulled out. And for me, that felt really really hard to to deal with because I had set I'm very I'm someone who sets their mind to something and want to achieve it but in that moment I I didn't and that taught me so much how to go ahead and how to approach things and understand the value of rest and taking a step back and and then the other side of it is when I when I won my age group the year after to qualify, it was, I thought winning was going to answer all these questions that I had and it would be, you know, really make me who I am and all those different aspects and actually doesn't make a difference. It didn't fulfill anything. It was just, I, I put so much on that expectation of trying to win and actually it was, yeah, it was, it was great. It was amazing, but you know, it, these things don't answer all those questions that you have. From the second attempt, you did learn a huge amount about yourself and about how you should train and also race that you've taken forward today? Yes, definitely. That's got to be certainly a moral victory that you've had there. And, and that's something that surely that with age and experience, that's something that uh, you can't really be told. It's, it's how your body is feeling. And that's something that you've got to develop over time. Definitely. And racing is very exposing. Especially today, we have so much social media around all these things and people can track you. It's known, if that makes sense, that 
if you do well or you don't do well. There is that, it's dealing with those pressures as well. And through my experience, I've been able to utilise that either in a positive way or a negative way. In the marathon style, they put a tracker on your shoulder or your family and friends back home are following you if they wish to. And that was like really nice because you felt you had your people on your shoulder and you you knew you wanted to keep going because they were there. Well, sometimes that feeling can be quite overwhelming. It could be like, well, I don't want to let all these people down and I have to keep going. There's lots of different ways kind of how you utilise that kind of feeling. It can have waves, can't it? It can be you're on the crest of a wave and they're pushing you towards the finish line. But also if that expectation is too great, it might hold you back a little. Exactly, yeah. And I think that depends on where you are in that moment or just period of time in your life as well. That's clearly not where the story ends. What's next? So for me at the moment, it is just about health and I think that's really important. I'm going through that kind of phase. I actually caught coronavirus and was feeling pretty wiped. Being able just to go and exercise now is such a pleasure and I just feel so grateful that I can do that at the moment. There are things I want to do. I'd love to do some mountain races. I would love to go back to Marathon Sub and I would like to place higher than I did because I've gained the experience now and it's not to be competitive to anyone else. It's more, I always want to be better than I was yesterday. I just want to keep experiencing all these amazing things because endurance racing is a lot about the experience. For me, going and visiting different countries and different cultures and people is just really incredible. Well, I'm so pleased that you are now well and healthy after suffering from coronavirus and you've just completed a PhD, which congratulations, that's amazing. Can I ask you what your research was about? My research was about maximising endurance performance in the heat. And I investigated the three known key interventions, which are hydration, cooling and heat acclimation. That was the real focus and the theme is, uh, makes sense towards my training and my racing in hot conditions as well. So I submitted in December and I vibed by in February. Professor Mike Tipton was my external It was a really interesting experience going through all of that. And then I completed my corrections in May and just got awarded it. Most people don't know how long a PhD does take in the process of it. It's the longest endurance race that I've ever done. It's it's really nice to be in a position where on paper it's completed, but in my head I still feel like it's not completed. I think your experiences of your PhD days live with you forever. <laughs> now, while they're quite, some of them will be quite positive, others may be more at the trough of that wave we were talking about earlier. Having just recently completed a PhD, have you any tips or advice for people that may be interested in furthering a research career, wanting to do a PhD? My most probably valuable kind of words of wisdom would be to do something that you love because you you invest a lot into it and if you're passionate about something then you will no doubt do the work and commit to it it is a commitment it's a phenomenal experience to go through a phd because there are so many different phases within a phd it's, it's not just about the research aspect of it. 
there are so many elements to it and skills that you attain from doing a PhD. And it really is something that you need to be passionate about. You need to just sometimes go with the flow. And being able to be in a support system where you have people that you look up to, such as your supervisors, and also your peers, you're in a position where you're on this journey with several other people as well. They are also learning to become experts in different areas and you're able just to constantly learn and that's an incredible experience. That sounds very much like your experiences as a racer, not only having that support of the people around you who are within the race, but also people that have raced before and give you their experiences as well. Absolutely. I mean, doing a PhD is achievable. It's been done so many times before. And that's why, you know, that's something I would actually think about when I was doing it. This is really difficult. But yes, it is difficult, but it is something that you can achieve because look at your supervisors and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who have also done a PhD beforehand, It's it gives you that confidence that, yes, this is something you can do. Really, just with anything, it's being committed to it, keeping that focus, because sometimes you can lose sight of that. And it's remembering when I race and when I did my PhD, it was just, what was my purpose? Why am I doing this? What's the end result? Why? What is the dream, really? And that really kept me going throughout. Jodie, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you can join us again for the next episode of Humans in Extremes. This episode was created, presented and produced by Dr Heather Massey with production assistance from Tom Langston. The music used in this episode was District 4 by Kevin McLeod. All copyright information can be found in the show notes. <laughs>